It is a glorious day, a glorious season. Uh, Carlos has indicated on the men's uh, chat there, of course, that we get to enjoy the Word of God, the sweet communion of the saints, as well as baptism today, so we, we rejoice in that, and we're grateful for His goodness. May it be to us sweet reminders of a living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, of an attentive Father of a very active Holy Spirit, so we pray that that would certainly impress itself upon our minds. I draw your attention to the book of Hebrews this morning. The Lord uh, has us there. And uh, very fitting for us to consider the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ at this season of our year. The supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will on occasion uh, refer to the author of this, the Apostle. Uh, we have mentioned this before from the pulpit. I recognize that uh, in common days it is supposed that the author is unknown. However, historically it has been attributed to the Apostle Paul. Um, John Owen and John Brown both agree with that, and I'm happy to agree with them on anything they say for the most part. So when I refer to um, the author or the apostle or Paul, I, I am referring uh, most often to this epistle to the Hebrews, and it perhaps would be fitting at this time to consider that the apostle Paul wrote an epistle to the Gentiles. Uh, that's the book of Romans. Uh, and he also wrote an epistle to the Hebrews. Um, and he's addressing, really, in a sense, some different things, but nonetheless, both of those letters um, are... Peaks in the scriptures. Mountains that we uh, can ascend only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we might expect, the introduction, particularly these three first three verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, are a fitting, not merely introduction to the book of Hebrews, to this letter of Hebrews, but also they absolutely uh, give to us uh, thematically the complete expression, if you will, of the book of Hebrews. And so it would be appropriate that we could uh, happily consider this to be the progress of redemption in the book of Hebrews, uh, uniquely contained in this short section of three verses. Again, the topic, if you're using a copy of God's Word from the English Standard Version, you will notice likely that there's a heading there that is uninspired, but nonetheless... Um, I'm persuaded accurate the supremacy of God's Son. Now, we should consider the Hebrew audience because that is uh, the folks that this letter was addressed to. And what we see is that he is addressing in particular what was in the mind of the Hebrew uh, as they approach Messiah. And this is important for us. And uh, while well, I recognize that they're, um, to my knowledge, are not uh, physical sons and daughters of Abraham in the meeting this morning, we can be grateful that uh, in reality the Lord has redeemed many, most of us, such that we are spiritually true sons and daughters of Abraham. But nonetheless, the point is, is that because simply you're not a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you might not think in the Hebrew way. We could go back to the beginning of our own nation and see how prolific the thinking, the Hebraic thinking was, even in the beginning of our own nation. Um, 
we have some very significant symbology in our country that has Hebrew writing on it. Uh, there, there was historically uh, a very close attachment to the nation of Israel and to the beginnings, uh, the references to Exodus and so forth in the scriptures are not lost on a people who would embrace uh, the rightness of a biblical understanding of truth. And so we see that in our history. Of course, right now at this present moment, Israel is pressed upon our minds as it rightly should as uh, a real focus of our prayer and concern day and night as we consider what it is that the Lord is bringing. But as he looked at a Hebrew audience, uh, he addresses, for instance, Moses, the moral law, the ceremonial law. That was fixed in their minds. The messianic history of miraculous success. The unique position of being chosen by the one triune God. This was in the mind of the Hebrew, and uh, while even the Jewish Christians were... um, of course, embrace the messianic, uh, true biblical version of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, it's hard to completely wash away from their minds, as we unfortunately will notice in our own minds, the humanity of the Savior. And that's one of the things that we see here in this passage of Scripture, is the supremacy of God's Son. The reality is, is the messianic history of Israel was a history of human supermen. And we can think, for instance, um, even of, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. We can think of David. We can think of some of the great kings of Israel. We can think of Melchizedek, for instance. And these were tremendous men, but they were men. As a matter of fact, some of them were born in far loftier places than the Lord Jesus Christ was born. We can think of the prophet Isaiah who was among royalty. He was a royal man. We can think of other other figures in the scriptures that again would no less regale in the glory of what it is that God is doing, but it is possible, as a matter of fact it is probable, that when we consider the Lord Jesus Christ, we may slip into an emphasis on his humanity because perhaps it makes us feel a little bit more comfortable in his presence. Or maybe because maybe we have a little bit of a diminished view of exactly what it takes to redeem an individual, or what it takes to create the world, or to hold it up moment by moment. What we see addressed in this passage of Scripture is nothing less than coming face to face really quite abruptly with the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his lowliness. Westminster Shorter Catechism 27 is very, very important in this case as it shows us that the humiliation of Christ, the lowliness, the condescension of Christ uh, contained in the matters of his being born in a low condition of his being made under the law. Now, the idea here, again, is that, is that the Son of God, God himself, the creator of the universe, submitted himself such that he would involve himself in the process of literally being born as a human baby. That has a tremendous impact on our visual understanding of who it is that Christ is. And not only that, but he, was, he wasn't born, as you know, 
uh, in a palace. He was born in a place where animals typically are born, in a stable. And he was made under the law. This one who is above all things is the essence of justice was for a time placed under the law. He underwent the miseries of this life. The Bible reveals that he had no place to lay his head. He endured the wrath of God. He endured the cross, that most ignominious way of death, the most horrid, defiled way to die the Lord Jesus did publicly. He was buried, and he was under the power of death for a time. This was our Savior, of course, in his humanity. And what we also find in our own human experience is that familiarity with anything often breeds a certain contempt toward what perhaps should be a more lofty view of a person or even a thing. Have you ever misjudged someone? Have you ever had the idea that you know an individual and then they might pull out something that they crafted in their shop and you might say, I didn't know you could do that. Or it might be a piece of writing maybe that they have or it may be just in the expressions of their tender kindness when you consider that they've had a life that's been filled with violence and abuse. Or it may be the ways that they are gracious and thoughtful in comparison to the treatment that they receive. And that's one of the things that the apostle is addressing as he really introduces the the best, of course, that the power of God and that man can take as he explains who this Messiah is. Because Israel did have a history of messianic figures that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were all men. They were great men. They were imperfect men. They were men whom God did mighty things through. Unthinkable things. Expressions of power, of strength, of immensity. But nonetheless, they were, they were all yet men. We can be rather confident in our ability to judge appearances. And we may, as a matter of fact, consider that because of our confidence, because of our, our past track record with uh, doing what we, what we do, we may also reduce the importance of searching out a matter fully. It is a wise thing for a man to study his wife because he will find when he does that that this woman that he thought he knew seems to have different layers and understandings and capabilities and and desires and so forth that he had never really considered were he to boldly and confidently enter into this utter foolish idea that he would know his wife after a month or a year or two years or ten then he would have confidently diminished 
his own joy in the relationship that he has. And that is true, unfortunately, sometimes of the way that we approach the Lord Jesus Christ. It's likely that we're most comfortable thinking of Christ as a man because we're familiar with men. We're not familiar very much with God. The Bible reveals, in the words of God himself in Psalm 50, you thought I was like you. But I'm not. I'm not like you. And we should be so thankful for that. He is not like us. He is mysterious. But he's also good to us. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. If we were to summarize the book, we would see, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 4, that he's superior to the to the most uh, perhaps amazing being that we can consider the angels. He's superior to the angels. We can consider that one who was perhaps most glorified among humanity, among the Israelites, Moses. He's worthy of more glory than Moses, says 3.3. 3. In 5.6 and 7.17, 7, he is an eternal high priest. The great, rightly so, lofty position that the high priest held, of course, was completely eclipsed by this eternal high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sacrifice, well, the implications were of its perfection. Of course, 10, 12, and 1, 3 indicate that a better, ultimate, effective sacrifice, that final sacrifice is present in the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, in 12, 28, the, founda- the founder of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the Messiah. That's the Messiah in his deity. Every other kingdom will fail. Every kingdom on earth will fail. That's very difficult for us as Americans to hear. And so that's why it's, of course, so important for us to, uh, to look to the Messiah, for our every breath. Now I'd like to read again Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'd like to propose that to you that we simply go through, particularly verses 2 and 3, one phrase at a time and see what it is that is revealed to us. We see here in verse 2, last Days, the last days. Now, I'm persuaded that the reference to the last days is that we're in the ragged edge of the period of time of Israel, in the pre-Christian day. These are the last days. Think about 
the situation at hand. It was 500 years since they had heard a prophet in Israel. Certainly at this point, they should be looking for this Messiah that as referred to, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, could only be God. No superman could ever be the Messiah that would fit in consistently with what is revealed in merely one prophetic revelation in the book of Isaiah. They should have known to look for a true Messiah. As valuable and divine as the Old Testament was, it was an incomplete development of God's will and way. How would you like to be the one to tell all those Hebrews that their holy scriptures were incomplete? I wouldn't want to tell them that. They did revere the word of God. But as we've mentioned before, if it were compared to a room, all the furniture is there, but the lights are off. The New Testament casts the radiance of the Messiah onto the room of the Old Testament such that we can see its beauty more fully. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, it's important for us to recognize this very simple idea that the Son of God is not a synonym for Messiah. Now, children, when we think of synonyms, we're we're thinking about one thing that means another, right? This means that. It's the same idea. For instance, we could say uh, the Bible, or we could say a copy of God's Word, or we could say the Holy Scriptures. Those are all synonyms for the same thing. But what we have in this idea of the Son of God isn't a synonym. It's an additional idea with Messiah. In other words, it's the revelation that really the Israelites should have already understood is that this final Messiah, the one to whom all other Messiahs pointed to, all other Messianic figures, figures like Abraham, and Moses, and David, and some of the other faithful kings in Israel, those messianic figures, if you will, those were all humans. But the final, ultimate, the Messiah to which all of those pointed to must be the Son of God. The one who holds the office of Messiah can only be God. That's the point that that he's making. Can only be God. Now, he sets out to prove this idea in this several verses. Spoken to us by his Son, whom he created, appointed the heir of all things, I should say, through whom also he created the world. The creation of the universe is ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, if we were to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through Him. That is the Lord Jesus. Without Him was not anything made that was made. 
If we were to look at Colossians, for instance, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And we know that in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul declares that those who refuse to worship the Creator are without excuse. And so what the Apostle is talking about here is, first of all, he is linking and revealing to us once again that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the agent of creation. He's the one that created everything that was created. And we also know that if there's anything that is true about a Creator is that this Creator is worthy of worship, that he is none less than God. And so, his, again, his purpose here is, is for us to understand that the Messiah is the Son of God and worthy of our worship. Only the infinitely powerful God could have created the world. Now we see kind of who he is, and now we see what he is. Chapter 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the brightness, the radiance. True and proper representation of the infinite God. He is the glory of God. He's the beauty of his perfections. Think about the perfections of God, the attributes of God. He's, he's holy, he's wise. He's good, he's omnipotent, he's eternal, he's immense. And this is one of the things that we see, and it's so beautiful for us to see in the Lord Jesus Christ, is what he says is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And one of the condescensions and the beautiful sweetness of the Father in giving us the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, imagine the attributes of omnipotence, of all power of immensity, of this idea that he's, he's absolutely irresistible. Consider what all of those attributes would be if it wasn't for other attributes such as his holiness or his goodness. It would be a terror and not a display of tender care. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He he is the true and proper representation of the infinite God. Christ the Word, the communication of perfect divine glory. He is referred to as the Word. This is common language for us, the Word. But the thing is, is we, we may not really understand the idea behind it even. It may be that when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Word of God, we, we may think merely that He is the one who communicates things of God or about God, but, but it would be important for us to also recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven and He, he gives to us the Word from heaven, right? In other words, he, He's the one that, that tells us when, when someone visits you from far away, 
and you want to know what's going on in the old town you used to live in, you'd say, well, what's the word over there? And the Lord Jesus perfectly displays not only what's happening in heaven, but he, he is of himself this, this perfect uh, image representation because he is God. Everything else is an idol. We have here an allusion to the visible glory seen by Moses. If we know anything about the Father, we know that he's invisible. If we know anything about the Son, we know that he isn't. And so what you see in the Son is what you would see if the Father was visible. This is the idea. But of course the Father isn't visible. He isn't in human form. The Bible says he's the express image, the exact imprint of God and of his nature. If we were to look at Colossians chapter 1, not in verses 16 and 17, but in the verse just above that, in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Savior, this one who came in the form of a little baby born in Bethlehem, this one wasn't like God. He is God. He is God. I'd like to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, if you would. Isaiah 6. I'd like to read verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Who is Isaiah looking at? Sitting on a throne. And he is looking at God. He's looking at the Son of God. 
Who else could this be? The Lord Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now, let's not miss what it is that the Apostle is doing here in this book of Hebrews. He is working to elevate our own understanding and our worship of this one who is the Messiah. Now, I'll keep going back to this theme because it's hard for us, again, when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, even at this time of year, we're inclined to think of him in terms that we understand. We're inclined to view the Lord Jesus Christ in his humiliation. That's not a problem. It's just that we have to get beyond that. Because that isn't the fullness with which we are capable and with which we should look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at what he does. Well, we know that he's the radiance of the glory of God. That's what he is. We know that he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. That's what he is. Let's see what he does. Well, he upholds the universe. The idea here is the the government of the world, the operation of the universe. Now, there's another issue besides simply our inclination in our own nature to judge things by appearances and therefore to kind of likely consider the Lord Jesus Christ more in his humanity than in his deity. We're also unfortunately inclined to think of this universe likely with some aspects of deism thrown in. Now, the deistic view of the world is something that you're likely familiar with. The idea is that God was present, that he did create the world, that he wound it up and he walked away from it, leaving it to its own random possibilities. Now, the reason I say that it's possible that some deistic thinking has crept into sort of the storehouse of your view of the universe is that it's possible that you don't think the universe actually needs someone to uphold it every second. Because perhaps you're inclined to think that God created matter with a permanent nature. You're inclined to think that the lakes and the rivers and the trees, they are they take care of themselves. Well, yes, they have, you know, 
certainly some molecular assistance by their creator to continue on. But for us to think that there's no outside energy pouring into the maintenance of the world would be for us to slip into an unbiblical idea of the universe. I comment practically every time I unwind an electrical wire of this fact. And there is something that is known as entropy. Entropy is the tendency for all things to move toward disorder. I will tell you this, it is not a theory. It is not a theory. It is a law. It is an absolute law of this created universe. Everything in the universe tends to unravel, to uncreate, to decline toward death. Look at your face in the mirror and you will agree with me. Without the Lord Jesus Christ upholding every molecule in this universe, everything, everything would fall to degradation. This is the truth revealed in the Word of God. The Bible says here in Hebrews chapter 1 that He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. I ask you a question. How do kings express their will in their kingdom? By the word of command. The Bible indicates that by the word of his power, he upholds all things in the universe. You know in your own experience, that matter is not eternal. If you drove an automobile here today, you can attest to that fact. Matter is not eternal. The oil degrades. All of the machinery of that amazing object degrades. Right? The earth is no different. And... People that maintain well their vehicles still will recognize that there are certain aspects of aging and time that they cannot stop. They cannot arrest them. They can slow them, yes. And that is a great example uh, in a sense of a human way that we uphold these small aspects of our own being and place. It doesn't it should introduce us again to what it is that the Lord Jesus does. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We may be inclined to be unimpressed with this necessity of upholding. Now why is that? Why might you, why might you kind of look askance at this idea that every Every moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. 
Well, because you've done pretty well in this life. Your scrappy independence has managed to get you meals most days. Your better moments, you can fix a toilet. You've made it through to whatever age you are. But yet we probably should admit that often we're like the little four-year-old that sits down to a lunch that her mother made and says, wow, I've taken care of myself all day. It's not exactly like that, actually. There's rent to pay, and electricity to buy, water, and so forth. Food, clothing, shelter. Please listen while I read Psalm 104. I'll uh, begin, I think, where the, the Psalter begins in 104D, the song that we enjoy singing. O Lord, how manifold are your works, verse 24. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships, the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You say, well, I thought those little fishies down there kind of took care of themselves. Well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? As one who enjoys a little bit of farming, as they say, I often like to think of animals in terms of dependence and independence. And we have been, as God's people, even if we're not God's people, often described with the the terms for sheep. And sheep are, they're creatures that are absolutely dependent. They cannot exist by themselves. But in a sense, that's really not a very accurate description, and here's the reason why. Because God has revealed that every creature and every object, animate or inanimate, is actually fully dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ for its existence. Some are more vulnerable than others, for sure. The cows seem to be able to take care of themselves for the most part, if there's food to eat. But they can't go get food. And thankfully, mine haven't quite understood how to open up a gate yet. Our dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ for our existence 
is one of the ways that the apostle here is trying to help us understand the supremacy of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our own inaccurate thoughts of our own scrappy independence could incline us to really think in more of a deistic way of the earth instead of a fully dependent way on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals that it was done by the word of his power. This is what he does. He upholds the universe, and he does it by the word of his power. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, if Melvin showed up at my house to build something and he had a trailer that was empty, that would be an interesting day. The Lord Jesus Christ made the universe out of nothing. And we receive that by faith. That's what the Bible reveals to us here. We were to turn a few pages to Second Peter chapter three, verse five. Peter is indicating to those who reject Christ, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In this we learn the power and care of Christ over us, the weak, dependent condition of the world, the impossibility of God creating an eternal, independent universe. Now think of this. Think of this, if you will. Would an omnipotent, all-powerful God create a universe that was independent of Him? Would He do that? Could He do that? No. There's only one being that is absolutely necessary, that needs no other, that is fully, completely independent in every way, and that is God. Everything else is dependent. Everything else. That's us. That's everything else. That's this concrete slab, for instance, is dependent. To think that God created an eternal, independent universe is to create an idol in our minds. We learn true dependence upon God in this. Now let's look at this one. Who enters into the office of Messiah. The work of purging sins cannot be accomplished by any other except this God-man. The Bible says at the end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, what is he doing here? Well, the apostle is establishing this simple idea that the only person eligible to make purification for sins is God. That's the only one that can do it. Right? It's the only person 
that can do this. What did he do? He purged our sins. How did he do it? By himself. Here we have a comparison to the priestly office of Aaron. Though we know that Aaron's actions, the work of the ceremonial law, was only a, it was only a placeholder for the Lord Jesus Christ. For this one spoken of in Isaiah 6 that we read, this eternal king, this Messiah, this one who would be, yes, born of a virgin, but one who would come from heaven. Purged in the sight of the Father and the sinner forever. Finally, really, effectually. The purging in Aaron's day was only a typical purging and external. It was a signpost. It was that which pointed to, of course, that final purging, that effective purging of the Lord Jesus Christ. 